Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of Mahaliyati Mukalame, the dedicated podcast of the Climate and Environment Initiative at RSIL. Today we are joined by Mr. Ahmed Rafi Alam, one of Pakistan's leading environmental lawyers and climate activists. Mr. Alam is a Yale World Fellow and most recently was part of Pakistan's delegation to the UNFCCC Conference of Parties in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt last year. Mr. Alam, always a pleasure. Thank Raf, you for joining thank us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute privilege. Great. So uh, to get things started, I just wanted to talk about your experience as an environmental lawyer in Pakistan and your role in policymaking. You've worked extensively on the law, both lawmaking, policymaking, as well as in litigation. So I wanted to ask you to provide some insight over, uh, to provide some insight to your experience over the years, and particularly um, why you decided to choose this field that perhaps in Pakistan is quite underdeveloped and has over the years seen incremental uh, rise in attention mm -hmm. and awareness in the general population as well. So if you could talk about that. Well, I think it was in 2004 that the Supreme Court held its 50th anniversary. See, it became the Supreme Court of Pakistan in 1954. It was the federal court before that. So yeah. in 2004 or 2006, I don't remember. And it was Iftikhar Chaudhary Kavakta. So they had their 50th anniversary. And in preparation for that, uh, you've heard of the firm Manviwala and Zafar. Yes. So in preparation for that, Mahmood Manviwala was doing the preparations for the conference. And uh, I had been invited to speak on uh, something and had a, had a conversation with him. And he was, I was just a couple of years into the profession. He, he sort of said that, you know, the two things he'd learned about being a lawyer in Pakistan is that you had to, he said, bete bethero, in other words, keep on sitting. And secondly, specialize. And by bethero, I, I understood that, you know, of the group of people that joined the Patta in the civil court in the summer of 2000, I was one of maybe about 20, 20 young men uh, and no women, I should point out. Uh, that's changed dramatically in the last 20 odd years. That... Very few of us still litigate. Right. Most of us uh, went into uh, what we call chamber practice or some other work yeah. because it's a cutthroat business. Or balbi safed and people take me seriously. And so, sort of just sticking around long enough gives you, there's, lends you a sense of authority which perhaps is overblown. But that was number one. Yeah. And number two, he said specialize. Because Mr. Manviwala had uh, looked at in the early 1990s, he'd, he'd focused on privatization. And then when the privatization wave took Pakistan in the mid-1990s, he, he surfed that like no one's business. And Manviwala and Zafar is indeed one of the largest firms in Pakistan. Yeah. And most distinguished. So that was always a lesson for me. And a couple of years later, I remember I was involved in some litigation which turned out to have an environment angle. And it seemed to me to be interesting to, to focus on environment. Uh, because there were very few people doing that as well. And that has been the case. There, there are very few environmental lawyers. And that has given me the opportunity to be part of, in the last 20 odd years, to be part of most of the environment policy and litigation discussions and cases in Pakistan. So that's how I got involved. It was really because there are too many banking lawyers in Pakistan. And I didn't want to wait in line. I mean, um, yeah, I completely agree with you that um, obviously Pakistan has definitely seen sort of a slow, like it's been slow coming into the environmental law game. It's a growth industry. Yeah, for Look sure. Look at the air quality. Uh, yeah, um, and so uh, given that progress so far, what do you think we've done well? And what do you think we should focus our attention on now that we've sort of developed, for example, climate change policies, we've developed even air quality policies, although one could argue they may not necessarily be implemented as well. 
what do you think should Pakistan now focus on moving forward in terms of its climate action? Well, the one thing I've seen that's not necessarily uh, related to law is that when, when I decided to focus on environmental law in the late 2000s, uh, and the environment law of Pakistan dates back to 1997. So the environment law legislation was about 10 years old. Yeah. There were very few, very hardly any legal practitioners. There was Dr. Pervez Hassan, there was his nephew Jawad, uh, who's now Mr. Justice Jawad Hassan, and there was Sayyid Mansur Shah, now Justice Sayyid Mansur Shah, who were the sort of uh, godfathers and grandfathers and fathers of environment law in Pakistan. But there were hardly any practitioners in the field. There weren't any environment uh, scientists, there weren't any environment researchers uh, or environment economists. And that's because at the time, the, even the Higher Education Commission had very few prescribed courses at the university level on environment. So there are very few local graduates on environment issues in Pakistan. And that's something that I've seen change dramatically in the last 20 years, where we have not just institutions offering postgraduate, but also undergraduate courses on environment sciences, environment uh, policy. And so we have a whole cadre, a whole generation of people who not only are environment students, but have now experience under their belt, in some cases, nearly a decade's experience. Oh. So speaking to people about environmental issues, you get a very good contextualized knowledge of Pakistani environmental issues now, which wasn't the case uh, when I started out focusing on this in the late 2000s. What we had at that time, because policymakers still needed to know about environmental issues, what we had at that time is, for example, the sort of Ministry of Environment, what we say, Ministry of Environment wanted to get a rapid assessment of what's going on in Pakistan. There wasn't anyone, there wasn't a PhD or a Master's in Environment Policy in Pakistan, so they'd ask the World Bank for a bit of money or the ATB or the UN for a bit of money. Uh, some foreigner would be flown in for a six-month assignment and would give you a rapid assessment. And not that that's wrong, but I just want to explain where that came from. Because these guys were very good. <clears throat> but the problem with a lot of their analyses, which has been something that's, that's lingered in, in a lot of environment policy analysis sense, is that, firstly, two things. Firstly, it was in English, because these people didn't speak Urdu. And secondly, it was an outsider's viewpoint. Now, 20 years later, you can get a contextualized knowledge of environment issues in Pakistan, which is local, it's grassroots, it's in the vernacular. So, that's a huge difference I've seen. It doesn't necessarily have to do with law. In terms of law, we can claim that we have uh, a climate policy from 2012, one of the first developing countries to have a full-blown full blown national climate policy. And in 2017, we got the Pakistan Climate Change Act. Again, one of the few countries in the world that has a full-fledged legislation on climate change. Now, it's a different story. Now, you can claim that those things, and they are fantastic initiatives, but they also happened during the time of the 18th Amendment when subjects like climate change and environment and other things devolved in provinces. And although there is still a strong responsibility, a large responsibility vested in the federal government when it comes to reporting Pakistan's commitments uh, and initiatives on climate issues to, say, the United Nations, climate governance issues are very provincial in nature. So when we talk things like adaptation and to some extent even mitigation, when you talk about, talk about adapting agriculture, adapting irrigation, uh, or you talk about mitigation, reducing emissions by uh, transport emissions and stuff like that, that's all provincial responsibilities. We have federal issues, federal entities doing this, but they are mandated for the provincial governance of these issues. So what we need now, beyond the sort of federal laws and policies, is subnational provincial policies and laws relating to climate change and environment, well, climate change specifically. And here I might also point out 
in the last three years since the NKPK have come up with their own climate policies and action plans. But the breadbasket of Pakistan, 100 million plus people, Punjab, still doesn't have a climate policy. Right. Um, I think your insight does point out uh, one of the unique challenges with Pakistan is obviously the federal structure um, having to, again, after the 18th Amendment, now with uh, environmental matters now being devolved to the provinces, I think that has also disrupted the momentum with which um, environmental law and policy uh, could have been implemented with, at least uh, in the research that I've come across, mm -hmm. is that um, you know, we've had such significant developments with um, the PIPA and uh, the Pakistan Environmental Protection Act, and then after the 18th Amendment, the provinces had to sort of scramble to try and um, adapt that legislation. But they did. Provincial. All four of them did. Do you think that has now worked out better? Well, uh, one of the issues, and it's not like environment regulation worked before the 18th Amendment, but one of the issues was you had the Pakistan Environment Protection Act and it envisaged the Pakistan Environment Protection Agency as this sort of environment regulator for yeah. Pakistan. And it also envisaged the provinces notifying provincial environment protection agencies. Yeah. Now, under the Environment Protection Act, it was the PAC EPA that had powers and functions granted to it through legislation. And when you count them, there's something close to 70 or 80 powers and functions that were the responsibility of the PAC EPA. Now, under PIPA 1997, the provincially notified environment protection agencies didn't have a legislatively conferred powers and functions right. in the act. They were delegated some of the powers and functions of the PARC EPA. So the power and function to enforce environment quality standards, to pass environment uh, assessments, yeah. and to do some investigations and things like that. So you can say maybe a third of the, of the statutory responsibilities of the PARC EPA were devolved to provincial environment protection agencies under the structure of the Environment Protection Act of 1997. And it was based on those devolved powers and responsibilities that the provincial EPAs set out their field formations, they set out their budget requirements, they set out their manpower, their educational requirements for their manpower, all based on that limited delegation of powers and functions that were granted to them. Right. Now come the 18th Amendment, and after all four provinces passed their own environment legislation, now we have provincially established environment protection agencies. Yes. With again those same powers and functions that used that were part of the PAC EPA. So again, 80, 70, 80 powers and functions legislatively conferred onto provincial environment protection agencies. But their field formation, budget, and manpower is still pre-18th Amendment and reflects a limited delegated uh, set of powers and functions. What we need is uh, for example, in the case of Punjab, what we need is uh, uh, more money to the EPA so it can fulfill its responsibilities. You want the EPA to do proper testing for whether or not quality standards are being met? Well then, uh, for example, if you want to see if a factory is polluting water or air, you need the equipment and the testing facilities to be able to do so. Or more help us hand. So there's so many prosecutions I've seen in the past where the EPA will go to a factory say this and say, yeah, you're polluting. Not based on any sort of uh, test or anything like that. Literally, the guy just, oh, it's a chal And he'll, he'll issue a, a prosecution, a prosecution will start, he'll go to the tribunal. Uh, it's a criminal case, and soon enough there'll be a trial, and then evidence has to be adduced, and then there's no evidence. And so those cases are dismissed. And it's expensive having those uh, testing kits. It's, it's expensive having the testing facilities. And that's, that's where the money needs to be focused that's where 
governance needs to be focused in order to improve the performance of environment regulators, and we're not seeing that happen at all. Instead, what we've seen in the last 10 years is packages to the farmers, overpasses and underpasses, subsidies to the automobile industry, and when it comes to the environment, the environment agencies and the departments are told up, World Bank are selling up, UN are selling up, European Union are selling up. So it's not, it's not money from within the government, uh, government itself. Pretty interesting. Uh, again, uh, it also goes to show uh, how much work needs to be done in, again, like you said, building up that prevention capacity and maybe in the future even sub-prevention capacity mm -hmm. to um, to improve our uh, national and local climate governance. Um, from that, I would now like to move on to um, your insights into Pakistan's position in international environmental law. Um, you were a member of Pakistan's delegation in 2002 to the UNFCCC uh, uh, the Conference of Parties, COP27. Um, so, just to begin with, what was that experience like? I think a lot of us uh, international lawyers were very fascinated by um, these conferences of parties that happen under uh, these big treaty mechanisms. And you, the UNFCCC COP is one of those platforms that I think the entire world looks towards because um, just the sort of uh, the, the relevance of the issue that the global community is trying to fight under the COP is very um, is, is a pressing matter to say the least. And so, uh, just from your overall experience, um, how was it being yeah. part of the G77, you know, trying to fight for greater climate justice, particularly for developing countries around the world? Well, it was, uh, I've never, I've never been to a COP before. Right. I've always wanted to go. Uh, and uh, you know, definitely what you wish for. And <laughs> there was everything was overwhelming. The Shahbashik Conference of Parties had over forty-five thousand delegates. So the conference center itself was like a small city. Um, and I, I remember going with my sense of um, skepticism that this place doesn't work, but coming out with a sense of optimism that yes, diplomacy and negotiation does work. There is within the UN system, uh, or at least the COP system, one party, one vote, and one, uh, what's it called, the rejection. Unlike, say, the Security Council. Yeah. There's one party, one vote, one veto, that's it. And so Vanuatu and the Bahamas are equally powerful as the United States. And there were plenty of instances where UN, US negotiators were crowded out by blocks that formed during the, the negotiating of, of certain points. Now what happens is when you go to the conference of parties, the UNFCCC uh, is broken down into a number of different subjects. Yeah. So you have adaptation, you have uh, mitigation, you have finance, uh, you have you know investing in youth, all sorts of subjects, yeah. dozens of them. And each one of these issues is, is then, there is a negotiating room with a negotiating agenda that the parties must yeah. go through. Uh, Pakistan, has a limited amount of climate experts and also it, it focuses on a limited number of issues as well. It doesn't go full out and have like a thousand people negotiating a yeah. different things. We negotiate a half dozen different things, so our, our negotiating team is relatively small and we focus on those issues. And uh, between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Climate Change, there are, and also private sector, there are individuals who have been part of Pakistan's negotiations at COP for years 
So it's not like every year, Tukka Nikal Ke, a whole bunch of people go there. That does happen. The politicians are there to, cut, you know, to have their faces shown and stuff like that. But the negotiating team has intellectual, oh, sorry, the institutional history. They know each other, they know other negotiators, they know their jobs, they've been doing it for years. And I saw that work right. very, very effectively. Uh, under the, the leadership of, uh, right now, I think uh, the gentleman is Pakistan's ambassador to South Korea. And he was the head of the delegation. He's been doing this for years and did a spectacular job, you know, marshalling his negotiators and making sure that the agenda was met. Now, at the same time, you asked, you know, what is Pakistan's position at these COPs being? Well, other than last year, Pakistan has been one of a number of small countries going to COP. And as far back as I can remember, Pakistan's negotiating position at COP has been we're overall a very small greenhouse gas emitter, but we are extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Therefore, give us money, if not Taliban or terrorism, which has been you know, some position that we've maintained. But last year in July, August, September, Pakistan was hit by these unprecedented monsoon floods in Sindh and Balochistan. There was an attribution science study done by Imperial College London which determined that 75% of the intensity of the monsoon rains that fell in Pakistan was due to the 1, 1 1.1 degree centigrade global warming caused by climate change. And so we know that this problem wasn't caused by Pakistan. It was caused by historical greenhouse gas emissions emitted by the global north. But Pakistan suffered. 30 million people were displaced because of the floods. $30 billion worth of damage was done to infrastructure because of the floods. But it was clearly someone else's fault. This happened in June, July, and August. Yeah. And this gave voice to what the United Nations and actually many small island states and vulnerable countries had been arguing for quite a long time. This idea that there be some sort of uh, perhaps reparations, some sort of financial facility due to countries suffering the brunt of climate change because the global north hasn't fulfilled its promise under the UNFCCC to mitigate their greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. And so, uh, quite by accident, the year before, in December 2021, Pakistan was elected to chair G77. And it wasn't until the beginning of the year that I think our permanent representative to the UN, Ambassador Munir Akram, was instrumental in bringing loss and damage onto the agenda for the COP. It wasn't even on the agenda. Even yeah. before the floods, it wasn't on the agenda. But because these small island states and others had been lobbying for it, Pakistan yes. was instrumental to put that issue onto the agenda for the COP. And then the floods happened in Pakistan. The floods happened in Pakistan, and all of a sudden, we are the poster child for loss yes. and damage. And so our position, or Pakistan's position come November, was radically different from its other positions or its position in the past. It had to argue for loss and damage. It had to be the poster child. And there, here I have to say that between the floods in June, July, August and November, the Ministry of Climate Change understood the, the task it had ahead of it, did its research, did, it work, did its work and could deliver a sort of length and breadth of policy uh, discourse that was accurate, it was nuanced, it was on the ball, and I have to give credit to the Minister Shahir Man, to the Secretary, to the Joint Secretaries, to everyone down to the Section Officer who worked their pants off to make sure that this could happen. But also beyond that, 
coordination with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And because a, a lot of loss and damage, a lot of adaptation finance uh, has to do with finance, Ministry of uh, Finance, yeah. Ministry of Planning and Development. And then also, believe it or not, to bring this all together, the Prime Minister of Pakistan. I saw all of these people working like hand in glove to make sure that this could happen. And for the two weeks that I was there, I could see the minister and secretary being the last people going to sleep, the first people up in the morning, conducting meetings throughout the day. And like I said, I took my skepticism to COP. And I, you know, during short breaks or in the evenings when yeah. I had the opportunity to speak to the minister, she was very clear. She never gave up. And that's, I think, one of the outcomes or one of my learnings about the UN process is that negotiation, diplomacy and optimism pay off. Right. At the end of the day, it was a remarkable thing. I, when I left uh, after 12 days, uh, the entire the senior delegates and, and the negotiators left after 14. The conference was for 12 days, but it spilled out for another two days. People who yes. know about COPs know that they spill beyond uh, yeah. their allotted time. And the last 48 hours there, nobody slept. And I was, I remember, I came back on a Friday, Sunday morning, Sharma Sheikh is, is a couple of hours behind us. I was surprised that the announcement had been made. It was a genuine uh, surprise that this had happened and joy that it could happen. Now, that said, let's draw back because I was part of this team and it was very exciting to be there. What did, what did the world get? Yeah. The world got an agreement that there will be a loss and damage facility, which specifically excludes liability. All so right, okay. Specifically, there's, so you see, when you say reparations, that yeah, means yeah. the global north has to admit its liability in the problem or its sort of its part of the problem, which no one is going to do. So now you have a loss and damage facility that's been announced. Yes. There's already a global climate fund. It was announced 20 years ago. There's no money in it. Oh, what's different now that going to make money pour into the loss and damage facility that already didn't come into the global climate fund? So there are questions. Who's going to pay into this loss and damage facility? Which yeah. countries? If it's the US or countries in the European Union, then on what uh, criteria are they to pay? Uh, what, and in what proportion? Yeah. Who's going to determine that? Nobody knows. And on the flip side of the coin, countries receiving money, most of, well, all of whom, most of whom are, are developing countries, and many of whom don't have reputation of, reputations of financial transparency. Let's put it nicely that way. So what guarantee do Global North countries have that the money that they're paying into this fund will be used by these countries to go to the communities and to the places where it's needed and not to buy SUVs or you know, some exactly. sort of other ludicrous stuff. Yeah. And so the end of the COP27 was that there will be a loss and damage facility, but these questions, these naughty questions, will be answered by a committee established uh, which will respond by COP28. The Transitional Committee. Transitional Committee, yeah. that's right. And the Transitional Committee has recently been announced. Uh, it has some great people on it. And it has its work cut out for it. Now, again, I go back to my skepticism, right? I think the announcement of the loss and damage facility is a, is a diplomatic success. It signals the ability of, of less developed nations to be able to negotiate successfully. But, I mean, don't forget that the purpose of the COP is actually to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Yes. That's what climate change is caused by. Uh, and that's what you have to do. And there were no firm commitments at COP27 to phase out or even phase down uh, fossil fuel use by 2050. That was something that was like, you know, not there. So there's still lots of work to be done. 100%. Um, I think um, it was at COP26 where there was a whole um, 
debate around the words phase out versus phase down. And I, I think quite a few countries at the very last moment uh, edited their uh, edited the, the final decision where it was uh, where they replaced the word phase out and phase down. And just I think uh, one of the things we don't realize, um, especially at these big international uh, conventions, is that even such a small change in the language can have such massive ramifications and can have massive yeah. consequences on the sort of obligations that other states take. Um, and so in light of that, I also wanted to talk about uh, the global stock take. So that's going to happen. Um, I think, will it happen it's, this year? Yeah. Yeah. So I believe the global stock take will be taking place this year uh, in Dubai uh, at COP28. Um, so the transparency and accountability measures of the Paris Agreement reach a very important milestone at the global stock take. Um, so what are your impressions of the, the GST this year, uh, given that um, currently um, the progress that we've seen so far is that with everything in place, we are on track for a 2.8 degrees Celsius That's about warmer right. world. That's about right. Yeah. Um, the global stock take will tell us what we already know, right. which is that not enough is being done. And I'm beginning to understand that this, the, the, the Paris Agreement limit of 1.5 degrees of global warming or compared to the Kyoto Protocol uh, limit of 2 degrees, um, th these are the maximum amount of death and carnage that global north countries' leaders are willing to absorb in their own political constituencies. They are deaths that are going to happen in the tens, if not hundreds of millions in global south countries. And this figure of 1.52 degrees, this is what these politicians can absorb in their own countries. They're going to let the rest of us die. Yeah. It's quite, and, and, and there's just not enough being done. As a matter of fact, there are many countries on account of the Ukraine crisis that have used the crisis as an excuse to roll back some of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, sort of initiatives that they have. Look at Germany. It's gone back to coal because it's not getting gas from Russia. Yeah. It's it's abhorrent. There's no other word for it. And you and you think um, uh, global North countries would have more resort to renewable energy sources, and they would have greater advances in technology to um, to at least reduce emissions. Money, money, money sells. Um, uh, it's the it's the bottom line that drives uh, everything. And so last year, Shell posted a profit of thirty four billion dollars. A little bit more than what Pakistan needs to fix its infrastructure on account of the floods. Just one year's profit from Shell can offset the damage caused uh, to Pakistan by the floods last year. I mean, uh, what about the fact that COP is being held in the Middle East and Saudi Aramco posted $162 billion profit last year? So as long as these companies are doing this, making so much money, uh, clearly in knowledge of what it means for the future of this planet, uh, you know, it, 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 again, it's abhorrent. Yeah. No, I, I think it is, it definitely is tragic how uh, the sole, I mean, the, the main driver of uh, policy and, uh, you know, policy implementation is money. And uh, that kind of sort of runs counter to what the climate crisis needs. And it needs, uh, while of course one can argue that you know, um, increasing adaptation finance or creating a loss and damage fund will contribute and diverting money away from um, climate damaging activities might help. Um, it, it does seem like I think we are all a bit skeptical 
to what extent this could be enforced. Agreed. And and I'm glad you used the word driver because things like loss and damage or adaptation finance, these are these are these are technical terms that are quite complicated. Yeah. I don't see things very complicated. I see the drivers of the climate. We know that climate change is caused by greenhouse gases. 100%. But the drivers of, of this are things like the global economic system, which for lack of a better word, I'll use capitalism or neoliberal economics, whatever it is. But what it has been, it has been the unaccountable exploitation of natural resources and human capital, historically. Yeah for the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few and the creation of poverty everywhere else. Uh, that's one of the drivers of the climate crisis. The fact that we look at billionaires as success stories rather than policy failures, which is what they are. The climate crisis is driven by colonialism, which is a, the historical extraction and abuse of natural resources and human capital. And it still exists today in the form of uh, neo-colonialism. Um, consumerism is another driver of the climate crisis. I'm not saying personal habits, but certainly the consumer habits of the richest 10% of the people on earth who consume 50% of its resources, yeah. right? It's the Bezos's blowing themselves up into the stratosphere. Uh, that one space ride uh, consumes enough petrol that more than more petrol than I will consume in my entire lifetime. Just yeah. one space ride. Uh, four kicks, you know. Um, that has to change. And, and of course, the patriarchy, which supports all of this by excluding women from decision-making uh, in all spheres. So these are the drivers of the climate crisis. And these are the systems that need to be replaced with something more equitable, something that allows for accountability when you abuse natural resources or human labor, something that uh, allows for better gender representation. Right. Um, I, I think now, um, given... Uh, sort of your insight into the global stock take and what information we might receive from it uh, at COP this year. I want to now focus on what Pakistan is in a position to do if, for example, the global stock take, which I think we can already foresee, would demand us to take urgent, immediate action. Is Pakistan in a position to uh, to actually do so, to, uh, to implement its, its obligations to across mitigation, adaptation, and then hopefully loss and damage once the fund is established? Well, um, I think Pakistan's role at the next COP will focus on the details of loss and damage, yeah. given the momentum of last year. I think Pakistan will continue to focus on increasing access to adaptation finance. Yes. It will continue to look at financing opportunities in certain areas of mitigation, specifically for um, energy efficiency. I think they will work on those issues. Uh, but I think in order to fulfill its obligations under the UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement, we need to, we've already said that we're going to try and change our energy mix and introduce more renewable energies into our energy mix by 2030. That will be able to do or reduce 40% of our estimated greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, provided we get international funding to do so. Otherwise, we'll be able to do 15%. And the type of funding we're looking at here, Ras, in order to achieve 40% less greenhouse gas emissions than we expect is about $7 billion a year in funding or in grants, which I'll remind you is larger than the IMF facility that we are so sort of having such difficulty negotiating sure. right now. <laughs> and that's the type of money we need. Um, and, and that is indeed the type of money that Pakistan does need. Look, the floods last year blew a huge hole out of the Pakistani economy. And what we got in return, I remember the UN 
shortly after the floods had a had a, a relief appeal yeah. where they asked the countries to donate i think the first the appeal was a couple hundred million then they raised the appeal to about 450 million dollars and pakistan got peanuts it was like 100 100 million dollars in change that it got in in uh, and this is this is emergency relief and then after cop there was a conference in europe where again pakistan was seeking funding uh, for repairing the damage to its economy yeah. and bright announcement thi that nearly 10 billion dollars had been announced but most of the most of that money was actually loans so the global north heats up the planet blows a hole out of the pakistani economy and pakistan gets loans in exchange yeah again that's just that's that's viciously that's um, that's cruel that's cruel yeah that's yeah. absolutely cruel and it shows that the international financial system is not working uh, mm-hmm. properly you know and it's not just pakistan there are other countries in similar situations yes. nigeria suffered if you think one third of pakistan was under flood but 80% of nigeria was under flood last yes. year the philippines got hit by repeated uh, hurricanes and typhoons last year spain was under flood last year so there are plenty of other countries that are in desperate need of funding and then when you turn around for it you get the answer that we don't have any money you're like really look at how much money you're paying the ukrainians to battle out how much money you gave to afghanistan for that little war on terror that you were doing and a couple of years ago when the notre dame church burnt in paris within a week do you know they got a billion dollars worth of grants it's yeah. it's racist and it's cruel and it's it's unjust well i mean um, on that note um kind of uh, sort of foreboding but uh, what issues again do you anticipate are going to take center stage at cop this year apart from of course loss and damage that, that you mentioned well let's see if uh, getting countries to agree to phase out fossil fuels by 2050 can be argued when the cop is being held in, in a country that is built upon built upon entirely almost on fossil fuels yeah and again do you think pakistan in particular is going to focus more on loss and damage or do you think there might be other items on our uh, domestic it's very difficult to say agenda? because our if well, fingers crossed their elections in october and True. if their elections in october there will be a new government that will send its representatives to cop which will have its own agenda and hopefully the team assembled by ambassador munir nabil will be able to continue its fantastic and stellar work continue that momentum that it had from last year work on loss and damage and climate funding and things and doesn't get disrupted by pakistani politics great and i think on that note we can end uh, today's episode thank you so much for your thank insight you very much for it was me. it was a very interesting discussion although to some extent quite grim and uh, quite um, um quite disappointing to say the least about how global politics has influenced the climate crisis i think it has given us a lot of food for thought on uh, how we can move forward and i would like to thank you all for joining today's episode please tune in for further episodes as well